Welcome to the Kill the Lion podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. We got a great one for you today. We have Dan Lotz here, filmmaker, YouTuber, awesome guy. You're going to love hearing from him. If you like the show, support us at killthelionfilms.com. You're supporting not just the show, but our entire film studio. We make feature-length films. You've probably seen a bunch of them, if not all of them. We want to make more. Support us. $2 per month. It supports the show. It supports the studio. Here is Dan Lotz. Dan, good to talk to you. Hey, Cody. How's it going, man? I'm doing great. I imagine you're doing pretty good. Uh, how's the how's the weather over there? It's uh, it's getting warmer. Thank you know the Lord. You know it's been so cold, man. It's been crazy here. Yeah, I feel like uh, I've just been locked inside. Uh, I I feel like now it's time to start getting creative, and I, now that it's warming up and uh, sort of uh, getting back to the norm normalcy. I don't know. It just feels a little bit more normal now that there's not like eight piles of snow in front of my car. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't make movies when it's like super cold. I've I've learned that by now. I I I'm more creative in the springtime and the summertime as far as actually shooting stuff. And then for like fall and winter, I'll either be editing stuff or I'll be writing stuff. I know you're starting your new project in the spring, I believe, where you're you're shooting twelve movies in twelve months. Is that right? Yes. And as for the cold thing, I agree with you. I'm more creative during the summer. Uh, just want to note that because, like, I feel like that's like I thought. I thought that was just something I was like, but I think a lot of filmmakers are like that. But yeah, the 12 features in 12 months. Uh, so basically, the idea at least is to at least shoot 12 features in 12 months. I don't know if it's going to be 12 features shot in 12 months and released in 12 months. I hope that's the case. Uh, we're gonna see, but uh, I think that to make that promise might be a little too uh, too ballsy. Yeah, I think just shooting them in twelve months—that's that's plenty impressive enough. I love that you're starting when it's warmer. I love that because if if you were starting in January, I'd be like, man, this boy is not gonna do it. This is, he is he is not gonna pull this off. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought, and I think the, another reason is that. I needed time to give myself, like, I needed to take a break from long con, which that's what I'm doing right now, and I basically needed to just promote that, and I wanted to take a little bit of time to, 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 to basically refuel, and then give myself a couple months to write some new ideas, come up with some new stuff, and my hope is, is I'm going to put all the easiest features first, like, there's going to be like two or three that I know are going to be able, like, I'm going to be able to do them in my sleep. And then hopefully warm up enough that when I do the more complicated features, I'm not so uh, scared. I don't want to do something that's super ambitious the first thing because I feel like then I might just be scared off the whole project. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I think that like it's funny because like if you talk to me or if you talk to Joel Haver or any of our guys as far as like truly independent film, like you know you doing this, we're just like yeah, yeah, totally, you could do that. But if you talk to like quote-unquote civilians or people in the industry or whatever they're going to be like what are you talking about are you talking about short films are you talking about like and it's like no you 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 can do this i don't think i could do it if i started in january just because i can't do stuff for like six months anyway so it's like i might as well just start when i'm like at my most creative and able to deliver and I that that was like a that's like a poker tell for me as far as the fact that you are going to pull this off by the fact that you're starting so late. Yeah, and I think 
that was a choice that I made, and I, at some point I realized, I was like, well, because I was like, if I try to do it by January, I'm like, I'm going to get three features deep, and then I'm going to quit. If I do it in summer, there's an actual idea to, like, set up a slate of movies and actually execute each movie. Like, so the first movie will be a documentary on the making of my first three films. It's going to be called The Folk Filmmakers, um, and that's going to be basically the the initial one so the, what's awesome about that is other than collecting interviews and then i have basically all the archival footage that i need to make it work uh, already so that's going to be something i can literally edit and do in my sleep and all i have to do is just record a couple quick interviews with actors and and then people involved with uh, productions well if you ever need a uh, talking head for that one i'd love to uh chime in if possible that's what I'm. My hope is to get guys like you, Joel Haver, other people, and get them for like the more wider context, and then specifically focusing on the three films we made, but then also trying to recontextualize it within the folk filmmaking movement. And that will be a segment in the documentary itself. Is is the movement beyond just Dan and Joel? Joel Dick. That's awesome. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about folk filmmaking. I feel like everybody has their own terms for it. I know Joel Haver talks about zero budget a lot or no budget. I use the term truly independent films. You use folk filmmaking. I love that everybody has their own little flavor to what we're describing as far as this new movement in independent film and the very, very low-budget productions that are very impressive and are, you know, not constrained by like, oh, this needs to be like two minutes long. This can be like actually a feature instead. Talk, talk to me about how you arrived at folk filmmaking as a concept and as a filmmaker that you decided to uh, make films this way. Yeah, so folk filmmaking... When you say, like, we all use different terms, I think that it's, like, in history, there was probably different terms for every wave and movement. And I think that at some point, there'll be one that will sort of rise to the top that just becomes the most adopted, obviously. So I think the way I came up with folk filmmaking uh, was I was in uh, McDonald's, which is the funniest place to, to do this because the most corporate place, basically the opposite of what... Uh, uh, I wanted to to do was basically I was with what one someone I would consider a mentor, and I basically showed him chlorine, and he we were meeting up to to watch it, and he's like, "This is like folk filmmaking." And he said that, and it, it just like hit a spark in my brain that I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is exactly how we describe our films," and I instantly knew this was how we were going to market the films going forward. And it originally was just a plan for just to market my films. And then I was thinking, well, what's more uh, going to attract more people to this? Being something that just I can do or something that everyone can do? And I thought that's the more interesting way to, to do it is to let it be something that everyone has power and control over. That you can be a folk, folk filmmaker and you don't have to really come up with your own name you can use this label as something that that defines what you do yeah i think that's a it's a great term because it does get to the warm quality of your work and a lot of our work um there there's something cold i would say about so-called uh, legitimate indie film the kind of you know indie in name only 
you know, A24 is is basically, you know, as big as anything else these days. That kind of um, filmmaking, there can be great movies made that way. You know, there's no wrong way to make a movie technically, but there there's a lack of warmth that I feel like we deliver on in spades. Yeah, and I think that, I think it's the calculation of that. I think it's when you see an indie film that's, realistically a Hollywood production, but uh, but is using the name indie because it's just become a sexy term that festivals like to throw at you. Um, I think that's where you see the coldness. It's, it's the calculation in it. And I think when you look at works like Chlorine or Sheep Theater or Long Con, you don't see that calculation, you know, or with your works, uh, you, you don't see that calculation there. It's clearly you're using the term truly independent filmmaking or folk filmmaking because you actually believe that's what you're doing. Right. And it also, I mean, my first love was music as far as, you know, doing art and creatively. And um, definitely, like, when I was in high school, that was the time period. I don't know if you're familiar with these these people that I'm going to mention, but, like, you know, Adam Green and the Moldy Peaches and, like, the, the, the anti-folk movement that was really attractive to me when I was in high school, and that kind of steered the kind of songs I was writing at that time period, which kind of ended up being the songs that I used in my film Strummer. But I have like a positive connotation with folk, and I think a lot of people do as well, where it's it's just like, man, I can settle into this. This is of the people. This is... um you know, it just feels like you're not necessarily maybe around a campfire, but around a fireplace. It's just that's what we're going for with our films vibrationally. And I think you picked up on that really well. And I, you know, I'm rooting for every single one of the terms. You know, I'm I'm rooting for folk filmmaking. I'm rooting for truly independent film. I'm rooting for any any other ones that come around down the pipeline. And I think, um, you know, we'll just see what resonates with people the most but i think folk filmmaking it's very persuasive as a as a word and so i think it it does stand a chance of possibly being quote unquote the term when we look back on this period in film yeah i think that the term conjures in your mind just an image and i think that's the one thing that i liked about it and i can't, i can't take credit from that because uh it was my mentor's thing. So I've, I've always tried to say that he was the one who came up with it. I think he's a genius for saying that. But yeah, I think that uh, it just conjures a certain image in your head. And I think people have certain connotations with folk being anti-establishment in some way. That I think that you just can't rip away from folk. So I think folk filmmaking gives you a warm feeling, but also gives you an anti-establishment feeling. Gives you a feeling of just home-brewed sort of like feel. And I, I hope whatever term, like, I, I don't really think any of the terms are bad. I think all the terms have their merits and they all are definitely going to be something that I think is going to be used in the next few years. And whatever ends up in the zeitgeist in, in the future, we'll, we'll see. I think we should mention that your mentor is Ronald McDonald. Yeah, Ronald McDonald sat down with me and then basically he said, hey, listen here, kid. It was the it was the statue of him, right? It was one of those ones where you're like sitting on a bench at McDonald's and there's a painted Ronald McDonald, an, 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 an inanimate, man, I bobbled that joke. It was so good too. An inanimate <laughs> Ronald McDonald and his disembodied voice told you about folk filmmaking. Exactly. That's exactly where it was born. That's why I had to add the little wrinkle of it being in a McDonald's because it was about Ronald McDonald. <laughs> 
It's so funny um, that we're talking about McDonald's on this episode because you haven't heard the first episode yet, but when I was talking to Joel, for some reason, Sprite kept coming up. It, it just, and I feel like one of the themes of this podcast, because it's still finding itself, you know, these are just the first few episodes. I feel like one of the themes of this podcast is going to be unintentional product placement. I like it. So the first episode, it was just very Stripe heavy. I'm sorry, they're very Sprite heavy for no apparent reason. And then this one, McDonald's, and then, you know. Hopefully we'll continue the, tr- the traditions for future uh, future episodes. Exactly. Who knows what's happening in episode three, but I'm sure it's going to be some other, you know, unintentional product placement thing. So tell me about uh, your, you, well, tell tell the listeners, of course, about uh, about your uh, your feature films. I've I've seen them all. I've seen Chlorine. That was the first one I saw. Then I saw Sheep Theater, and then I saw The Long Con. These are all really interesting movies. I, I'll say right off the bat, these are, are a, a treat to look at. You have this this boy wonder, uh, Joel Dick. I know <laughs> you did this. You you yourself did the cinematography for, for um, Sheep Theater, yep, which looks wonderful as well. Um, let's let's tell the uh, listeners about Joel Dick because you know we you you dropped the name a little bit earlier. I don't want people to think you have beef with Joel Haver and you're calling him a dick. I want I want to be very clear to the listeners at home that Joel Dick is a separate entity. He's a he's a man. That's his name, and he he has a great eye for cinematography. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, what a better name for the entertainment industry than Joel Dick? Come on, I mean, how much better could you? I mean, it's it's fantastic. And any any entertainment industry, whether it's porn, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's uh, folk filmmaking, oh yeah, it's one of those names, man. We we really we really considered Dick Films to be one of our uh, top names, uh, but ninety two Films ended up being the one that worked out. But yeah, Joel, uh, Joel's got the secret sauce, man, with the lighting. I, I mean, obviously, I think anyone who's seen the films, I mean, it's the one thing that none of the trolls can admit uh, is that the cinematography is pretty good. Uh, so overall, I think Joel just really kills it with the lighting. And I don't know, I think he, he tapped into some sort of vein at some point and just really figured out uh, how to light a scene, how to block a scene and how to make it just work really well. And I think... If you look at his body of work, I think he's one of the best cinematographers working right now. That's like no one's like no one's talking about Joel's work. <laughs> like, and I think it's just crazy to think that like Joel has made three film or three films. He obviously shot some stuff on Sheep Theater for his parts, and I think some of his parts are the best looking parts in Sheep Theater. Yeah, I don't know. I think Joel just makes really great stuff, and I, I love working with him. And I think having him as my cinema- cinematographer, I think, has really elevated the the class and style of. Uh, the three films I've worked on. Absolutely. So let's let's go through your films one by one. Let's let's start with uh, Chlorine, which you know a lot of people that was that was the first thing they they saw from you because that's that's a film that kind of hit pretty well uh, on YouTube, and that's that's a bit of an unusual movie where you are playing essentially a hitman, and it has this great like almost like. I was a fan of the first season of Mr. Robot. I wasn't really big on it uh, after that. Were, were you were you into Mr. Robot? The first season I watched, and then I never I never picked up after that. Well, the thing that I loved about Mr. Robot, it was like just taking this ordinary person and giving them uh, so much power and so much depth, and 
you know, a, a just a hacker, a loner, suddenly is the central character to the entire world. And I love that Chlorine kind of had this thing where, like, you're this uh, unsuspecting dude, you know, just you know hanging out by a pool or whatever. And but you are this this skilled assassin. Talk to me about like the genesis of that idea for yourself. Yeah, I think chlorine. It was basically I was sitting at my pool and I had watched this video by Austin McConnell, who's like a pretty big, I guess, indie filmmaker type guy in the YouTube scene. And he was basically like, oh, make this fit, make make a project this year. And uh, maybe he kind of implied that he would feature it on his channel. And I remember going to Joel and saying, like, what if we just made a film? Like, we would just destroy everyone because there'd literally be no one who would even come close. So that that was just the general thing. But then for Chlorine specifically, I had been playing around with this idea of this. What I would basically call him like an autistic hitman was basically the idea. And I think I played the character in that way, somewhat autistic in, intentionally. And I did some research on it and, and how my mannerisms are and stuff. And I like that idea of having a hitman that couldn't connect with his sister. That basically he was really good, really his his inability to really connect with people was what made him such an effective hitman. But ultimately, it was what really let him down as a character, as a person. Um, so that was something that really interested me. And then Chlorine kind of had that moment where it's so weird because we made it as more of a distraction from working on Long Con because we were working on audio. And we were like expecting it to get maybe 500 views. Um, and it's so funny that it hit biggest of the three. And it's basically what I would consider to be one of the seminal kind of films in the folk filmmaking movement in the sense that it it's nearing 50K now uh, in terms of views. And, and I think that there's not a lot of work in terms of like sort of artsy feature films that are that are in that realm, at least on YouTube. It's uh, it's the best version of something that I notice with movies where you know, people are just starting out making movies and they want to cast their friends. And it's it's this thing where like, all right, well, how are we going to reach this like believability with the characters? Um, you know, because you don't want to be limited to just writing things that like, you know, your friends could specifically obviously play like a yeah. group of like slackers or stoners. That's usually where people go with it. And then you have the other side of the spectrum where people are like, no, my friend is going to be a hitman or a mob guy. And it's like unbelievable. But the great thing about Chlorine is that there's this earnestness to what you're doing that just gets you past that when you're watching it because it's just so unusual that like, you know, you, you just buy these characters because you're just sold this kind of unbelievable, kind of almost fantasy-like world um, that I think you, you, you achieved that really, really well with Chlorine. And I think that was, there was a lot of intention with, I, I wanted it to be like people that you didn't expect to see in a Hitman movie. I was like, I want every person in this to be not who you're expecting to see. Like, if you opened your eyes, you'd be like, that's nah, not who I'm expecting to see. And I think that just by the offbeat weirdness of it, I think it somehow just transcended the 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 tropes of, of being just, you know, a crappy movie with like your friends being in it, and it somehow worked. And I, I think 
it's a testament to all the other guys in the cast, and it's a testament to the fact that I somehow didn't flame out because that was my very first acting performance, basically, and anything other than like a five-minute short film. Yeah, you leaned into what you were trying to accomplish with that film. That's something that you do with every single one of your films is that you're just like, yeah, this is this is the movie that I am making, and it's going to be consistent in what it is for the, its entire duration. And, you know, trolls be damned. I made this movie. This is what it is. It's either for you or it's not for you. And here it is for free on YouTube. And I think that that energy is so folk as far as like, you know, one of the great things about folk is that it can be just a guy on stage with an acoustic guitar strumming it as hard or as lightly as they want to be strumming it. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's that thing of like, all right, if I want to be aggressive with it, I'll just strum the guitar until my fingers bleed. If I want to be, you know, beautiful with it, I'll pluck the guitar like in a gentle, uh, heavenly way. That's that's a a vibe that I get from your film as far as like the the dynamics of of what you're doing, and it has this gentle tone sometimes, and it has this uh, more aggressive tone sometimes. Um, but it always ha maintains that folk warmth. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you, you said it perfectly. I think uh, I could I could go on, but I, I feel like you you kind of encapsulated exactly what I'm trying to do, at least with chlorine specifically. I think the 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 warmness, but then also there's that the the, the brief aggressive or or emotional moments in the film. So let's let's talk about where you're you're shooting these movies. Um, what where where in the U.S. have you shot as far as your your features? Let's just go down the list. Um, so all three were so one was shot in my hometown. Long Con was shot in Plainfield, Illinois, um, and and then there was a somewhere up in Zion. There was a, a beach in Zion and a couple other locations. Sheep Theater was shot in my apartment in Joliet. And then Chlorine was shot all over Joliet as well as Vegas. We went to Vegas and shot some scenes there. So primarily you're a Chicago filmmaker. Yeah, Chicago, Joliet, Plainfield. I'm basically frequent all those areas. Awesome. So what would you tell you know, somebody who's living in, you know, Illinois or something about like what you can do and and do it where you are as opposed to thinking you need to be in New York or L.A. or whatever. Yeah, I think Chicago has one advantage that no other state has. And I think it's we have a thriving television market that gives people the shittiest fucking roles ever. <laughs> we have a market of people that are literally... All it is is Chicago Med, Chicago PD, all those shows, and you can play a doctor for three seconds on screen. So you have a billion actors trying to make it for a role that is really only going to give them maybe three lines. So the advantage of being in Illinois is you can have this giant pool of, because it's one of the bigger places for acting, you, you have this giant pool of actors, but no one is making features out here. Like, literally no one is. So if you make a feature... Basically, any person, you're going to be able to get them for very affordable or completely for free because they just want to work on something. Uh, and so I think that's one advantage that specifically uh, Illinois has. Um, and, and is one thing I think that has made my feature films possible is that the acting pool is so rich, but the, the releasing 
of content there is so is so poor that people really want to fight for a good project, something like Chlorine or Blancon or Sheep Theater. Yeah, that's very important. And I, I see similar things happening with New York where, you know, I have access to this pool of talent of people that are just fed up with not getting anything very good out here. And they just want to see see that you are going to release it. You have a track record. And they're usually just on board. So you look at a, you know a website like Backstage or whatever, and you know it's it's a buyer's market, so to speak, as far as if you're trying to get a movie made. And I I assume even more so, you know, in the Illinois area. You know what what you also have in Illinois is you have uh, access to stuffed animals. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, and uh, we should we should go there. We should talk about that. You know, you don't always have to hire actors, people. If you're listening at home, you can also use stuffed animals, which you use to great effect in sheep theater. So let's talk about sheep theater. Yeah, sheep theater was a movie I shot basically out of boredom, basically out of depression and loneliness that I felt during the quarantine because. Illinois was one of the most, I would say, toughest uh, on on the whole quarantine stuff. And my wife was uh, is a respiratory therapist, so she basically works on COVID like twenty four seven. So basically, every day of my life is like uh, are, like waiting for the shoe to drop, basically. And so there was a certain anxiety and fear I felt. And so Sheep Theater was this almost like fantasy world that I could escape in my mind as to where I could go to, to express all these feelings. And that's the first half of the film, what happened. And then my wife and I, uh, my wife got pregnant, and then basically we had a miscarriage. And so that miscarriage informed the second half of the film, where, where the loss and, and, the, and certain things that I filmed. That, and I think it really kind of cemented and finalized and crystallized a lot of the feelings I had while making Sheep Theater. And... I think it was all done through these puppets, which I think could have been a huge, you know, mistake. Everyone could have thought I was some like weirdo with these puppets, but I think somehow the childlike wonderment and the the sort of dark setting somehow contrasts well enough that people enjoy what's going on with uh, the story. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting movie. Obviously, anybody who who digs my film Ramekin you know they they're going to be right at home with something like sheep theater they're used to inanimate objects being mined for horror and cuteness and just everything in between so if you if you like ramekin you will love sheep theater uh to anybody listening at home for sure yeah i think sheep theater uh has a it has a lot of uh influence from stuff like ramekin and and i think that there was clearly there is there is a legit direct reference to Ramakin in the film. <laughs> yes, there is. Yes. And I appreciate it. Absolutely. So that was my little hat hat tip to, to Cody on that one. So Long Con, that's your your latest release. I think it's your best work to date. And it's also the film that you ended up working on for the longest time. You know, it was in itself a long con. I, I, I remember seeing a comment where somebody's like, is the film itself a long con? What is this some meta thing? Because it's it's been like a couple years and it hasn't come out yet. <laughs> that was always the joke that sustained us, I think, was that like the, the long con, we didn't want it to become the long con. Like we didn't want it to truly become this thing where we worked on forever and then we never finished. And yeah, I think the long con 
it's been getting a lot of good reviews uh, so far. I think it's held, it's holding at our as our most uh, popular so far, but maybe we'll see where things go in the future. But I'm I'm excited to see uh, what people think about it. I think it's the film that I, I I can talk the most about because it has the most to talk about in the film. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to this one. It, it feels like your biggest movie, and it also feels like all right, this is going to be the way in for people that are used to quote-unquote bigger independent films but what i mean by that is just higher uh budgets um more traditional uh storytelling as far as like you know crime and noir like this is this is the movie that's going to rope people in and make them realize oh like this is like you can do stuff with stuffed animals like i get that but like oh my god you can do the same thing as as much bigger movies but at a very small budget what was the budget on long con long con was 3k which is insane i mean it it easily feels like a 2 million dollar movie and realistically it was more like 2500 we broke a window uh, there's a little reference at the end that we like at the credits we say sorry for the broken window we broke one of the windows of the house and that cost 500 dollars so it was more like 2500 if you don't count the one mistake that we made there, um, which was uh, so basically, I mean, for twenty five hundred dollars, we made what I would consider to be like, like you said, like something that you think could compete with a, a full Hollywood film. And I think no two films could be more opposite. And I'm glad I released them so close together with Sheep Theater and Long Con is that Sheep Theater basically says like, hey, when your back's up against the wall and you have nothing, here's what you can do. And then Long Con is like, hey, you don't need that much resources, but if you have some, this is the results you can get if you spend the time to put to put something good out. Yeah, it's a movie where like it's it's one, you know, known star away from being like indistinguishable from a movie of a enormously higher budget as far as like what people are used to. And so it's going to be this kind of way in for a lot of people. And you have you have tremendous acting in the in the movie. Talk about the the, the female lead that you have in this, which you you've done work with her before. Um, I'm going to mess up her name, so just uh, just talk about her for a little bit. Yeah, so uh, Anna Dvorak um, is an actress from I think Naperville, and basically we worked on a little short film called Pull the Trigger, which was basically a, a teaser for a feature film we were working on at the t- like we were wanting to work on at the time, but never really got to. We met her on that and she played a role as like like some like just like housewife role like basically she just had to come in and be mad at someone and we really liked her uh in that part but it was such a small and minimal part we 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 felt we could write better stuff um and so when long con came around we we really wanted her to be involved and she was really excited to and so we asked her and she i mean she gives a fantastic performance um in my opinion, I think it's one of the breakout performances from the film. Probably my like in my top two favorite performances of any of my films. Honestly, I think it's 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 really amazing, and I, I think that she has an immense talent. And obviously, she worked on Chlorine, and I think she had the number one most. We had a screening, and the only compliments they basically said the acting sucked across the board on Chlorine <laughs> at this place that reviewed it. But everyone said that Anna was fantastic so we knew we were in the right place and and we felt good going into the fact that long con features her for a lot of the film and the film is basically sort of about her character 
Yeah, she's a, a tremendous actress. She has this great presence to her. Her eyes are are just made for cinema. You know, she has that quality to her, like you know, uh, Ingrid Bergman type mm-hmm. type of thing, where it's just like, oh, this is a person who is born to be, you know, on screen in a cinematic uh, capacity, um, and she has the acting chops to boot. You know, she she has it all. Yeah, I, I think that. Everyone on the film really killed it, but I feel like Anna specifically had uh, had a hard role to play, and I feel like not many actresses could have done what she did. Yeah, it's a uh, it, all these movies. I should I should stress again; these are absolutely for free. You can go on YouTube right after you listen to this episode. You can watch any any one of these movies, and you can also watch. You know, he he does. Dan does these great interviews with people like myself, like with Joel Haver, like with anybody who's doing anything interesting in film uh, that you can check out on his channel. He does videos where he's talking about uh, making movies or, you know, giving people strategies, giving people like uh, ways to come up with ideas for stuff to make. It's it's kind of like a one-stop shopping, your YouTube. Was that this intentional thing where you wanted to be like this kind of hub uh, how did it come to be as far as like uh, figuring out what you wanted to do on YouTube? Yeah, I think it started off as just being a place to put work when we first started. But I think uh, it was around, I don't know, I think 2019, like early 2019. I sort of changed my whole mindset to filmmaking because I knew that the whole festival circuit was really not going to be the place where I was going to get a lot of success. And so I sort of changed my focus to wanting to build my brand around the making of my films rather than just the films themselves. I figured that, you know, the document don't create an idea that I think Gary Vee, I know he might be considered a charlatan by many, but I think uh, his idea of documenting and then showing your creation after you've documented it, I think has a lot of merit. And I think, um, it's so much easier to wake up on a Tuesday and upload a video about how you made a movie rather than making a movie every week because you just can't do it. You can't make, you know, a one hour film every week. I mean, it's just be impossible. So you have to figure out a way to fill in those 52 weeks, you know, in a year. And so I think that building the hub, building like all the other content around it was definitely a very intentional choice. And I wanted it to be something where if someone like me had the camera, had the the cinematographer, had the ambition, but they didn't know really where to go, that they could literally click on 922 films, binge all the videos and be like, okay, we're good. We're ready to go. And, and, And my hope is with my documentary, The Folk Filmmakers, that will be like my final artistic statement on on that and basically giving you like a two to three hour documentary that's literally going to give you everything you need in order to just go out and make it yourself. There'll literally be no excuses anymore. That's awesome. That's uh, that's something I can relate to definitely as far as wanting to give people no excuses anymore. I'm sick of these excuses, man. I'm sick of these aspiring guys. I hate the word aspiring. Like, just do it, man. That was... That was my impulse with my with my book, Kill the Lion. I was like, 
you know, there's no Which is a good book. Which is a yeah, good book, by the way. Very good book. I, I endorse it as well. I give it five stars. He gives it five stars. Hey, it's my a- mom bought one. My mom bought me a copy of it. So I have two copies, actually, because she didn't know I bought one. <laughs> so, she, <laughs> so I actually have two copies. I'm actually thinking about uh, raffling off one on my Patreon to, to give to one of my f- fans. <laughs> That's a great idea. Um, but yeah, that was my impulse, too. I was like, there's no book dedicated to specifically making movies for no budgets in the way that I'm making them. So why don't I put it all in the book so that I don't have to deal with people saying, yeah, you can do it. But what about me? You know, I got to figure it out. And it's like, no, you just got to read the book, watch a couple of my movies and you have everything you absolutely need. So that, that that's this thing, man. It's like we have to get rid of these excuses these hang-ups you know you know there's too many young talented interested in film people out there that get brainwashed by you know going to the library and picking up some film books where they're talking about here's all the lights you're going to need here's all the crew you're going to need here's the amount of money you're going to need like two hundred fifty thousand dollars just to like you know like all these weird like mythologies of uh, independent filmmaking that are just so obsolete, you know, like, I, I don't know how many filmmaking books you've, you've perused through, but if, if you pick up one of these things, you're going to come up, come away with it thinking like, oh man, I can't do this. I can't put this together, especially in this, you know, this COVID era, like it's never going to happen. But if you go on YouTube, you go to 922 Films, or if you you check out Cody Clark movies or Joel Haver movies, you know, you're going to be, by the end of the day, you're going to be like, oh my God, I can do this. Like, this is this is not a dream. This is my reality. I just have to do it. And, and yeah, and that's basically, I think it's like sort of like a rabbit hole, basically. Once, I mean, how many people, I don't know about you, but I basically on a daily basis get like one to three messages a day basically saying like, hey, you know, your film Chlorine inspired me. I'm going to go make my film now. I'm going to make it, you know. And I think it's almost like that that quote about the Velvet Underground. I, I forget how it goes. But basically only like, you know, 2,000 people listened to the Velvet Underground when it when it first started. But, you know, every one of those 2,000 people went out and made a fucking band. And I think that's exactly what we're doing right now is we're not – Obviously, Joel has a huge channel, so it's a little bit different. But like for the most part, we're not big on the main stage. But every freaking person that's going to watch this stuff, I think, is going to go out and make their own stuff because I think the the raw creativity is addictive. Yeah, I feel like almost Joel Haver is our like Nirvana. Like he's our he's our Kurt Cobain, and we're like these other awesome grunge bands. And it's like, you know, the, the, the folk filmmaking, the truly independent filmmaking, the grunge movement, these are just these like seismic events where like people realize like, oh man, you know, Nirvana rocks. And then they're going to be like, oh my God, all these, all these Seattle bands rock. And then like, it's just this, this huge wave where like, you know, the way that movies were being made prior to what we're doing, it's kind of like the equivalent of you know the the big hair metal stuff where it's just like you look at what these larger indie films are doing and it just seems ridiculous compared to what we're doing like what we're doing just seems so much more relevant much like grunge and uh i think we're going to very clearly win i think it was like one of those things where like it was uh you know before joel hit like so huge 
you know, and if you if you haven't listened to the Joel Haber episode, go back and listen to that. This boy is getting like four million views on his short films. He's close to one million uh, subscribers on YouTube. He, he this is this is our little Nirvana boy over here that's uh, breaking out. And before before he hit, and we were all just kind of like at the same level, like basically conceiving that we were going to win as far as what we were doing, but we didn't have the proof yet. You look at what he's doing and you see like, oh man, once the reach is out there, the masses are so ready for what we are doing. They just don't know we exist yet. And when they know we exist, man, it's it's going to be insane. Yeah, I think totally. And I think that you're only one or two big shout outs, big collaborations, big, big connections away from it going off. I mean, think about all the great artists from like the Hollywood new wave. I mean, they were all like the schmucks of the, of the industry until they were running the, basically the jail. And I think that folk filmmaking will do that, but in a more ethical and more honest way. And I think hopefully at some point, I think in the next, you know, five, maybe 10 years, I think you're going to see us, you, me, and other guys in the folk filmmaking movement making what I consider to be bigger stuff and probably more successful stuff and stuff that is actually getting uh, mainstream uh, appeal from from audiences. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm I'm firmly of the idea that like the masses are way smarter and way hipper than what they are exposed to. You know, I think the the commercial idea of we need to give them like Fast and the Furious 29 and mm-hmm. that's that's all they deserve because that's all they can stomach. That's this very like uh, condescending approach that that Hollywood takes. It's like a regressive. It's like a regressive idea that yeah, you, the only thing that people want is like Marvel, you know, the newest Marvel film or the newest DC film or whatever. Yeah, it's so funny because like it, it's it's funny that like guys like us we we get the reputation of like oh they're just pretentious you know with their little art films or whatever. But really, it's that's the attitude of these major studios. You know, it's not our attitude at all. We are we're of the people. We 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 understand that the movies we make are weird, but we we believe that everybody out there is just as weird as us and can get what we're doing. And it's these big studio execs that think that the masses are just these cattle that all they can eat is this crap that they shove into them. And it, it, I, I think that like one of the great things that will come out of what we're doing is a, a, a connection between the people and the truly independent folk filmmaker, no budget, whatever guys, you know, we, we're just, we, we are them and we, uh, will be embraced by them and we are already being embraced by them and we don't need you know, to analyze it any further than that, it's a it's a direct uh, connection between the artist and the people. Yeah, and I think that you're going to see the consciousness of the the average American, average anyone in the world. I guess their their taste is going to just broaden because of what's going to be coming out. I mean, a film like The Long Con is just it's just weird. I mean, it's just a weird movie. And I think that once people get that, you know, 
kind of taste of something weird, I think that people will start to crave that. And I think that will be the thing that sort of fuels and motivates the, the rise of, of folk or truly independent filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. All our stuff. I mean, every one of our movies, they're pretty, they're pretty weird, but we we're banking on weird being more accessible than, uh, the, the suits think it is. Uh, we, we're going to close out this show with a, a segment that I came up with when I was, uh, doing the Joel Haver episode. It came about very organically and I decided that it should be a part of the show. It's just a little icebreaker type thing that just kind of decompresses us towards the end of the, the thing. And that is stupid questions. Okay. I'm going to ask you some stupid questions and then we're going to, we're going to get out of here. They'll just be quick. You can give yes or no answers. You can give short answers. You can do whatever you want. Sounds good, man. All right. Let's, uh, I'm going to rack my brain. Think of uh, a good, stupid question for you right now. All right. So your last name is Lots, right? Yes. What, what's that all about? Uh, I think it's uh, a name that's it's like a name. It basically means like dog. It means dog? I thought it meant like a lot of stuff. Uh, I think it means dog in German. I think Lots means dog. So basically my name is Daniel Dog, which sounds dope <laughs> that's a great name that's like if you're if you're like a hip-hop like old school like like guy or whatever that's a, that's a great name daniel dog yeah i like it <laughs> that, that sounds like something that would exist man yeah now 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 i'm gonna go uh, trademark that yeah you need to do like a kid's show on youtube where you're daniel dog and like you have like a dog helmet maybe that'll be the next film in the sheep theater uh, universe daniel dog I love that I said helmet. For some, <laughs> I meant to say mask, but for some reason I said you need to be in a dog helmet, which I feel like that's unique enough that like, oh man. It must exist a, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think that first question went so well that we should just only do that one. I know you know you're pressed for time as well. Very quickly, where can people find you? I think we talked about 922 Films, but are you active anywhere else? Uh, if people want to check out your stuff and reach out to you or whatever, where can they they find you? Um, yeah, so people can find me at 92 Films at YouTube. Uh, you can also type in five dollar film school for Patreon. Um, my Twitter is Dan D A N underscore lots all capital all capitalized. Um, and I usually am on Twitter uh, beefing with other filmmakers and talking about uh, fun stuff. And I think that that's probably where you get the most wholesome and and me reactions to things. But yeah, those are the places I usually uh, frequent the most. Awesome. Dan, thank you for being on the show. Great to have you. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. Once again, if you like the show, if you like the studio, killthelinefilms.com, $2 per month. Support us today. Thank you. <laughs>